We continue in our study of the Bible this morning. We're taking one book of the Bible each week this year. We come today to the books of Samuel. During the month of May, we're going to take Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. It captures the golden age of Israel. Samuel in the Hebrew Bible form one book. In the English Bible, it's broken into two. They contain the stories of three great leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David. Two kings, Saul and David, one prophet priest, Samuel. Samuel had to come first because in God's economy, you need someone to do the recognizing and raising up and anointing of the leader. And so God raises up the anointed priest Samuel, gives him a vial of oil with which he can anoint as he recognizes God's hand on his leaders. He recognizes first Saul, then he recognizes David. In many ways, it's the story of the beginning of the season of kings for Israel. Israel didn't like it that God alone was their king. They wanted to be like other nations. And in this case, God let them have their way. But he gave them a king a whole lot like himself in David. The contrast between the first king Saul and the second king David is quite dramatic. On the surface, they appeared a lot alike. They were both kings. They both ruled, of all things, 40 years. And they were both flawed individuals, imperfect. But that's about where it ends. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. David was not. He was overlooked even within his own family. Saul looked to people for their affirmation. Saul became so caught up with what others thought of him, it says that he would notice the way they were looking. And he would feel good about himself if they were admiring him. And if they weren't, he felt bad about himself. It got to where he could only accomplish so much in his own strength. And it drove him literally insane. He's one of the Bible characters of bipolar. At times he appeared totally in, in his right mind, and at times he was in a tailspin. And before the end of his life, he even consulted a witch instead of God, practicing a form of witchcraft or sorcery. David, on the other hand, was a man who did not fear people. He didn't care what people thought. His own father had overlooked him when Samuel came saying, I know there's somebody in your household that's going to be king. And he brings out the oldest 
and on down and completely overlooked David. And Samuel said, are you sure there isn't someone? Oh, yes, yes, David, but he's out tending sheep. He was so overlooked. But David was a man who knew God and lived under the favor of God. To where as a young man, he killed a lion and a bear to protect the sheep. When it was known that there was a giant who was intimidating the people of God, David was the one who stood up as a young boy long before he was king and said, how dare that uncircumcised Philistine defy the people of God? And with his little slingshot and five smooth stones went out and laid him low. And then became a great military leader. And the, the women of the day wrote a song. I don't know how the song went, but the words were like this. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand. And it just irked Saul to hear that tune. Whenever he'd put on the radio, that song was playing. He'd go out and pub, oh, that song was being sung. And it drove him bonkers. At one point, he became so embittered, so angry, that he took his spear and threw it at David. But it didn't bother David because David was there in the presence of the king to sing. David was not only a warrior, a courageous hunter, fearless, but... David was a minstrel, a troubadour. And when he sang, God's presence came. And there he would sing, and when God's presence came into the king's chambers, Saul's spirit that was harassing him would calm down. And his bipolar would come under control. David was known as being a man after God's own heart. That means two things. A man after God's own heart means that his his heart was fashioned by God for God. And as a result, his heart longed for God. David not only sang for Saul, but he wrote the longest book in the Bible, the Hebrew song book, the book of Psalms. The majority of the book of Psalms were written by David, who was a shepherd, who became a great warrior, military leader, and king. But he had a heart for worship. David was such a worshiper that he went on to be Really, the the worship leader for all worship leaders. Any worship that you enjoy, how we love David Maffey and Linda Mulliken and others, Randy Cooper and, and all the others that, that sing and lead us in worship. But all of them have learned from David how to worship. You go to the great ones. Handel 
We love the Messiah, but, but it was David that taught Handel how to worship. And David has taught us all how to worship. Now, an incredible worshiper. And when you look at David in the Bible, in your notes this morning, you'll see inside who is Christ in the book of First and Second Samuel. Well, without question, Christ is the son of David. It's difficult to overemphasize the importance of this figure, David. In a, in a way, as you read through First and Second Samuel, in a, sometimes it comes across like David is bigger than life. And at other times, he's like the kid next door to you when you were growing up. He's like the, the kid that you climbed trees with and shot your slingshot with and went for a hike and ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on a rock together with this guy David. That, that's kind of how he comes across. Now, he was very ordinary. And the one amazing thing about the Bible, the, the one of the reasons why the Bible rings so true just to an objective reader, is that the great ones, the heroes, are revealed Warts and all. The flaws of the leaders, the great ones in history, all their flaws are exposed. And David was no exception. Nehemiah referred to Jerusalem as the city of David. Isaiah talked about how the, the root of Jesse would sprout a messianic leader one day. You come to the New Testament and you discover that right away, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, refers to Jesus as being the son of David. Jesus goes riding on the colt into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, as we acknowledge it in our calendar year. And the people along the processional were crying out, Hosanna, son of David! And elsewhere you read that demons cried out to Jesus, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now isn't it something that the staunch believers recognized that there was coming a Son of David, but even the demons recognized that a Son of David was coming. And that it, that it was Jesus, the Son of David, the promised one to David's lineage. The book of Romans, this incredible treatise of, of the gospel, in the first chapter identifies Jesus, it says, as to his human nature, a descendant of David. The book of Revelation shows this exalted Christ holding the keys of David. And Jesus is identified as the root and offspring of David. What an amazing thing. God did not distance Himself from David 
even though David was imperfect. I want you to turn with me for the next few moments to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. The two chapters that would be the easiest to avoid are the ones we're going to belly up to. Chapter 11, you can write on top of it, The Anatomy of Temptation. It's a chapter that exposes like no other chapter in the Bible the the dynamics of temptation. When a woman or a man are tempted, this book shows, this chapter rather, shows what takes place. First of all, it was a vulnerable moment because it says in verse 1, it was a time when the other kings went off to war, but David stayed home and he was living in his life of ease. His mind was not battle ready. He had dropped his guard and it says he got up from his easy chair and looked over his balcony into the bathing neighbor. Chapter 11 is full of groans. It oozes with sorrow. It's grievesome. You can almost hear the groans of God. Oh no! Tell me it's not true. Please! Tell me this didn't happen. No, David! No, don't do it! Stop! The same David who demonstrated unusual power as a young boy in killing a bear and lion. Abused that same power when he took down his neighbor woman. The same David who was anointed to slay Goliath. Abused that anointing when he slayed Uriah the Hittite. This David who had marched victoriously in conquest in military battle abused that same power and position in his conquest sexually. It is a classic case of the abuse of power. You can study chapter 11 for yourself. Chapter 12 is where we want to look a little deeper. If chapter 11 is the anatomy of temptation, 2 Samuel 12 is the anatomy of repentance. At first there was this cover-up. There was an eight-month cover-up. And no one knew. It was almost like the perfect crime. Except God knew. Now, I would encourage you to write in the margin of your Bible on top of 2 Samuel 12, write Psalm 32 and write Psalm 51. Both those Psalms of repentance were written during what takes place in this chapter. 
David said, Psalm 32, When I kept silent regarding my sin, my bones wasted away through their groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Psalm 51, verse 3, My sin is always before me. Here, he had this beautiful neighbor woman who was now living in his home and he couldn't enjoy a moment of it because he was sick of his sin. His shame had overwhelmed him. It was as if that sin stuck a buoy knife under his navel and slid him wide open. He, his, his insides were out. He couldn't do anything. Because he had hidden his sin. God loved David too much to allow him to succeed at moral failure. And let me tell you something. God loves you too much to let you succeed at moral failure. I have to be careful not to pause too long when I'm looking at you eyeball to eyeball. Let me say it again. God loves you too much to allow you to succeed at moral failure. Some of you, it has not gone this far. Some of you, you're stuck in a rut of pornography. That pornography is a buoy knife in your belly. It's draining you of everything. Now what do you mean God loves you too much to let you get away with, to succeed at moral failure? Well, you're here this morning, and I'm preaching on this. I'm after you. I'm here to come and get you. David tried to cover it up too. But God loved him too much to allow him to succeed at moral failure. And he sent the prophet Nathan. And he built this incredible story. And David got so upset at the story. And he said, oh, that guy ought to be... They ought to kill that guy. And then... Nathan says, you're the man. And then verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He was exposed, but now when confronted with the sin, there is open, honest confession. Or as in Psalm 32, then I acknowledged my sin to you, verse 5, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. His repentance was deep. His repentance was open. His repentance was Godward. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Unlike Saul who, oh, one of the saddest verses in the Bible was when 
Saul was confronted with sin and he was confronted with how it displeased God and how that sin disqualified him from continuing as king in Israel, Saul said, I know God hates it, but would you give me favor with people? God have mercy. If nothing else had disqualified him, that disqualified him. David, on the other hand, didn't care about his reputation with people. All he cared about was getting it right with God. Against you, you only have I sinned. I've known so many people who've been caught in adultery, caught in fornication, caught in pornography, caught in one form of sexual brokenness after another, and the only thing that bothered them is that they were caught. Oh, I'm sorry my wife found out. I'm sorry my parents found out. That's not brokenness. That's not repentance. No, God catches us so that we might be able to confess our sin and expose it before Him when it becomes way more than just what people think. No, this repentance was so deep David says, Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's even before I was born. When I was in a little prenatal state. When I was what they called it a fetal tissue. I had this same... It was in my DNA. The depth of my sin. That's how deep my sin was. Some of us say, oh, it was a little blip on the screen. I didn't mean it. I, 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 yeah, I, I got into pornography. Yeah, I had, had sexual relations with someone outside of marriage. Yeah, I, I cheated on my wife. But it, but it was just one moment. It was just one moment for David. But David said, from my birth I was that way. And even before I was born I was that way. It, that sin is so deep in me. You see, he wasn't defensive. He wasn't guarded. He wasn't making excuses for himself. He repented all the way down to the depth of his soul. And he knew the depth of his sin. And he confessed it before God. That's repentance. And he had nothing to hide. Surely you desire truth. Psalm 51 verse 6. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And he is after God's manifest presence. Do not cast me from your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I want your Holy Spirit with me more now than ever. Psalm 51.11 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then that beautiful replacement. Create in me. Verse 10 of Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then when the repentance is complete in me, when it's so thorough in me, then David was able to say in Psalm 51, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and I'll be able to be a catalyst to turn sinners back to God. That's when you know your repentance is deep when you're able to be a catalyst for other people's repentance. 
And then finally, the jewel of repentance. The broken and the contrite heart. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God. This morning we talked about bringing God an offering. I forget the words, but it was something like, I bring this small, this little offering. Well, the offering of God is a broken and contrite heart. That broken spirit, which God does not despise. And I think of what a contrast when Samuel had to say to Saul, 1 Samuel 15:22, Does the Lord delight in your burnt offerings and in your sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Isn't it something? That in one way or another, it always comes back to worship. Saul was an outward worshiper. David was an inward worshiper. Saul mistook what God was really after. And he disobeyed God in order to give an outward sacrifice. And it disqualified him. He never did figure out the kind of offering God was after. David, on the other hand, the man after God's own heart, figured out the kind of offering that God's after. He's after a broken and contrite heart. Let me tell you what he's not after. He's not after perfection. Some of us have mistaken the thought that in order to be a person after God's own heart, we have to be perfect. Was David a man after God's own heart? Yes. Was he perfect? No. So where do we get this from? I want to drive that point home, but first let me just point out, David confessed his sin. His repentance is one of the monuments of the Bible that set David apart for every one of us and give every one of us hope. But there were consequences to his sin that were grievesome. Even though he repented, even though God forgave him, the child conceived by adultery died, and his family was never hitting on all their cylinders from that point on. That family suffered dearly from that point on. And the nation of Israel was the worst because of his sin. Sin is never the best choice. Sin will always have negative consequences, even when there's full and complete and prototype repentance. But now watch what David does. He comes out from hiding. He stands before God. He confesses his sin. And God does restore him and restore fellowship with God. Why is this included in the Bible? Because you and I tend to look for heroes who are flawless. Thinking that they represent who we really are inside. God will not give you that luxury. True heroes 
are those who recognize the frailties of their humanity. And they are willing to come clean. God was glorified in David's life. But the whole story is that God was glorified in David's failure as well. And to think that God did not disqualify David over one of the most tragic, heinous sins of any political leader. God led His man David in repentance and gave him mercy. And even when the demons cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. They recognized that David was a man who knew he needed mercy and who had it to give to others. May God break us permanently of any self-righteousness, of any thought that somehow we are a superior people. You know, there was a dear man who walked here on these grounds last night and met the Lord who was in the deepest pit of despair. As I thought about that, I thought, I hope this is a place where the deepest needs of Northeast Atlanta can walk in any day of the week and find mercy. And if you're here this morning and you need mercy, you've come to the right place. God gives you mercy. You see, He's already punished Jesus for your sins and mine. And the beauty is that when Jesus died, He died for David's sin. David didn't atone for his own sin. Jesus did. You can't atone for yours. You don't need to live under the cloud of guilt and shame. You don't have to live with skeletons in your closet. You don't have to live with with a pornography habit or a mistress on the side. God calls you to be a person of integrity, to walk in the light, to be a person of truth. And let it begin today with repentance. 